Ben. Hope you had a good lunch. I had a great lunch. <laughs> Nayon came, who is a good friend from Bangladesh. Anyway, uh, Ajahn Palmer is here. He's arrived from Thailand, as many of you know him. He's a monk of, I think, 16 years. And uh, good, very, very good friend. And we were talking about <clears throat> what I would consider the trap of intellectualism and how you'll find throughout Theravada Buddhism and I think any, any, um, any tradition, you'll find people who are very, very clever and be able to say things in very, very clever ways with, with a great deal of confidence. And that can be very impressive, very erudite, encyclopedic. Uh, but we were both agreeing oftentimes in those kinds of teachings, we don't sense wisdom as much as intellectual confidence and erudition. And, and there is a difference, isn't there? Someone can be very uh, clever in laying out I, let's say, just laying out ideas on how to um, make furniture. You know, they can have all the good theories, but maybe they don't know how to, the right side of a hammer. <laughs> so cleverness is not wisdom. Uh, well, either the stupidity. Um, so, so the idea of intelligence in Buddhism is not having clever positions and accumulating clever positions and looking clever, but rather it's the use of awareness, investigating the nature of reality, our reality, our existential reality as we're living it, not an abstract, and then from that discovering the truths of freedom, the truths of liberation, uh, enlightenment. And I think any authentic tradition is doing that. And I have seen both in monasticism and, and scholasticism, I, 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 you know, I'm very grateful that we have great scholars because they give me a chance to enter into texts and, and places where I wouldn't normally enter because I don't have the um, training for that kind of intellectual um, understanding of the various texts that we have. So I, I'm grateful for that. But I have seen a kind of <clears throat> conceit arise among people where because they are, you know, they figure it out intellectually, there's a kind of, I know, I'm the guy that knows, right? And this is what the truth is. And then I was, we were talking about just comparing what Ajahn Chah taught and what he was saying is it's uncertain. Now what's the, you know, it's like diametrically opposed, it seems like here's, this is really the truth. It's like this A, B, C, D, and all these lists and so on. And then Ajahn Chah comes along, yeah, but it's uncertain. And where was he coming from? Well, he wasn't coming from a lack of confidence. He's a very confident man. He wasn't coming from having a huge amount of self-doubt. Uh, and he had studied the text for seven years. So it wasn't coming from some backwards monastery where they never read, you know, where they're totally unintellectual, unread. No, he came from a, uh, a background of insight and wisdom. And then the way he presented 
this uh, the way of, of, of uh, Buddhism was very much around the way of non-grasping or non-attachment. And so some of you might have seen the the beautiful video on YouTube, uh, the Buddha comes to Sussex. You might have seen he's sitting on a park bench at Chithurst and uh, David asks him, so what's the, how would you put Buddhism in a few words? And he said, ploy wang, wang, and that's let go. And then David asks him, well, what do you mean by that? And it, he, he explains what he's pointing to. Now, letting go, uh, is a difficult idea in itself because it, it can sound like uh, complacency or uh, even repression or, or rejection or whatever, but it's, it's, <clears throat> it's really meant to be a way of, of coming back to that, the third noble truth of non-desire. And, and when, when we say let go, like if, you're, if I'm feeling uh, annoyed at someone, what does letting go mean there? Well, the annoyance has already arisen, right? It's in consciousness for whatever reason, historical and situational. Uh, it's there. So what would letting go there mean? Well, it wouldn't mean getting rid of it, because that's not letting go. But it would also not mean running with it, with the language of attachment. It would mean knowing it as it is. So letting go is letting be. Letting be is letting go in that way. And you can see what that what, what you have to do is to be really trained in non-desire as these things come and go in, a, in consciousness. So be careful of, of both in yourself of, of getting fixed on ideas of Buddhism, rather use intelligence and the ideas of Buddhism to get to the confidence, which isn't intellectual. You know. You know how to deal with your stuff, and you know where liberation lies. It lies in awareness. And then also, I would say, be cautious of getting overwhelmed by intellectuals, uh, you know, because you can feel um, intimidated by powerful people with powerful ideas. But the idea in Buddhism is not that you are... are um, disempowered with ideas. It's more that the ideas of Buddhas empower you to actually look into these things and understand for yourself. So in, in terms of, of what I was talking about, about the idea of, the, you know, the different ideas about rebirth is that, first of all, all these ideas that a teacher presents or the books present are for reflection. They're not, you know, they're not kind of absolutes. And what's happened in Theravada is sometimes you'll get a tradition, an interpretation, a commentarial tradition, and something means the same thing all the time. Well, my teachers, Lumpar Chan, Lumpar Samedo, and others, they say, well, look at it this way, look at it that way. So there wasn't a kind of fixed opinion about things. It was how do I use intellect, intellectual ideas, teachings of the Buddha, as tools coming back into my heart to understand uh, why I suffer and the end of suffering. So I don't need all the teaching. I just need enough to look into the issues that I face. And so some, some aspects of intellectual Buddhism you'll, you'll find appealing, some you won't. And you don't, have to, you don't have to kind of know it all. You just need enough to see what is letting go or what is, what, why do you suffer. It's simple in that way. Our minds are very complex. 
So the the idea that I was presenting around uh, cessation, say, um, you read a book, Hilary Mantel's book. I was just Ajahn Pavarov finished that too. Um, so you read the book, you finish the book, and then that's cessation. The experience of absorbing into a sense experience, reading, and all that that implies, which is quite fun, and she's a very stimulating writer, and it's your imagination takes it. It's, it's a very, it's a very beautiful rebirth, right? And then you reach the end of that birth, and then there's the conclusion. Now then, what do you do? Well, you look if she's published another book, <laughs> right? Or you have a sandwich, or you know, that's that's fine. You know, there's nothing immoral about having a sandwich and reading Hilary Mantel. But what happens is, of course, that the, the preoccupation of our attention is always in objects and experiences. The question is, like, how do you rest the mind? How do you give the mind a break? Yeah? How do you actually relax the mind? And that's by not picking up objects, not getting reborn, not as a rejection of the interesting things of life or the beauty of life, but rather as a way of finding, uh, finding a place where there is no need to get reborn, where there is no, the, no where you can see the, comp the compulsions of constantly becoming and doing and, and getting reborn. Then you find a balance. You can do things, you can read things, but you don't need to do it. And that restlessness of always needing to do something is very powerful in our society because there's so many interesting things to do, even when you're locked down. You may be locked down, but you've got the whole world and the internet, right? So it's, it's easier to always go into objects. It's easier, like, like classically, it's much easier to watch a YouTube video of the Dalai Lama than watch your breath for one hour. Because the Dalai Lama's charming and he's beautiful and his ideas inspire you. Yeah, and, and great. But then what happens next is you, you think that inspiration is really what this life is about, but the inspiration changes and you need another rebirth. So the noticing of cessation is, 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 is a place of finding um, peace in the mind, not dependent on, on this idea of rebirth. And inspiration is a very good example. I often talk about that. You, 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 I think there's a, there's a video going around about this holiness's uh, 85th birthday. I've gotten links from people and they have a movie to celebrate his 85th birthday on July 6th. Right, go for it, right? Um, but then maybe watch it and then see like when it finishes, what's the next moment? What do you do in the next moment? Now we usually we don't, we just talk about it or whatever, but just watch how when something ceases, inspiration ceases, then there's a kind of nothingness. And in that nothingness, creating gets born in order to have another experience. So I suggest that in meditation, we're trying to go to that seeming nothingness, to that blankness, to that emptiness, to that place where there isn't a sense of me becoming anything. And we don't notice that because we're so quick to move on to the next topic, the next object, next experience. 
And we need to, you know, we need to get on with life. You can't just sit and meditate and be a monk. <laughs> Not that we sit and meditate all the time, right? So you need to do things. But how do we rest the mind? How do we, how do we appreciate the stillness? Because if you, if, you get a hang of, if you get the hang of that, then you can rest the mind and see the beauty of that. But also you can create things and see the beauty of that. Or you can serve, you can do gardening, or you can bear with your cancer or whatever you have to do in this curriculum called life. Hmm? But if you never have that sense of refuge and, and a, where stability actually lies, then in, in, inevitably something comes which is disappointing, sickness, old age, and you think, well, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I didn't sign up for cancer. I didn't sign up for my, uh, my brother dying or, you know, whatever it is. But who signs up for what? You get what you get, and it's part of your curriculum to learn. And if one's never really found a place which is not an objective experience, then when objective experiences becomes really difficult, what do you do? What do you, you have no refuge? And that's the idea of taking refuge in Buddha Dharma, knowing the way things are. And, and why form of meditation is so helpful in this area is because you, you can really explore that and begin to strengthen that capacity to abide in the knowing mind. And, and that exercise is important because most of the time we're just so busy dealing with life and, and, and uh, taking, you know, having issues with people and friends and, and that our minds have to be outside all the time. They have to be engaged. They have to do things. They have to take on arguments and difficulties and so on, as well as engaging beauty. And, and, and then, of course, the, the, the kind of compulsions of mind are always overwhelming or, or, or they're kind of driven all the time. So meditation is a be-all and end-all, but it begins to, to, to illuminate, illuminate the possibility of, even within complexity, of having refuge, of knowing the way things are, of being able to respond skillfully to loss, uh, to sickness, to success, whatever, whatever, whatever comes. And the exercises of formal practice are particularly good because you, you, you're doing one thing, really. The one thing you're doing is you're awakening the mind constantly. You're awakening, awakening, awakening. And an exercise like that might not be very fun. You know, you might actually fall asleep as you're awakening. Or feel, you know, this is boring. I'm not getting anywhere. Or you know, anything but this. But... Just the fact that you notice the mind wanting to get reborn into something interesting, do something, or get away from this moment, is the awakened mind. Now that, because that exercise is constant for 30 minutes, again, you, you might have thought that that last meditation is absolute garbage. I'm pathetic, right? But don't judge it that way. Don't Because that's the experiential way of judging meditation. So when you're blissed out, that was a good meditation. You remember Ajahn Chah's phrase, when your meditation makes you peaceful, then accept it. When your meditation doesn't make you peaceful, then accept it. And, and you know, what's that, what's that pointing to? It's pointing to awareness rather than the experience. So if you, if, you, if you take on formal practice in that way, it's actually much more easy to be self-disciplined. If you take it on, oh, I'm going to get some experience, you'll fail 90% of the time. Sorry. <laughs> but if that's not... No. Hello. Uh, if that's not your attitude, your attitude isn't to get some kind of experience, and it is simply to cultivate the aware mind for half an hour, then it really doesn't matter. 
you feel restless, you feel uh, interested, disinterested, you just do it. It's like calisthenics, you just do it and you get good at it in that way. So the attitude of gaining or achieving in meditation is very counterproductive because you won't want to do it much because you'll fail so much. But if you do not define meditation as success and failure, but simply being away with whatever that half hour brings to you, memories or emotions or physical pain or bliss or silence or peace, whatever comes, awareness, 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 knowing the way things are, it's uncertain, it's changing, that is a huge benefit to all the rest of life, right? And then all the rest of life becomes a much more intelligent, you become much more intelligent in your participation in the rest of life because you have refuge. You know, the way things are, your responses are, are can be more moderated or, or reasonable. Now, uh, the, the language we use in meditation is that I was thinking what's a good analogy is uh, we have a, we have a, uh, one of our monks is formerly a physiotherapist, uh, Venerable Ruggiero. Um, he's from England and he's been with us a, almost a year now, I think. Um, so his background is physiotherapist. And I was thinking how, like a physiotherapist, when they're asking you, like, let's say, uh, like I have problems with this side of my neck. And so I go see a physiotherapist and the therapist gives me exercises and does some dry needling and kind of opens it all up and then I, I get a sense of where I'm holding my head wrong when I meditate, it happens when I meditate. Um, and so the physiotherapist isn't giving a theory about my uh, muscular system, no, she says, now hold your head this way, no, no, no that way and do these exercises and do them a lot and so on and so forth. So she's using language, but it's not, it's not intellectual, it's more like coaching, isn't it? I mean, there's intellect in it because she understands the topic. She's very good. But what she's doing is she's training me to be aware and mindful so that the way I am operating uh, doesn't bring the pain and, 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 and dysfunction of my neck, right? So in the same way, that's the language you want to use in your own development of your heart. You want to use language which is encouraging, it's directed, it's intelligent, because only you can understand yourself, right? But it's a language which isn't, it's not involved with a whole sense of me and mine. It is about me. It is about my neck or my mind, sure. But it doesn't have that whole narrative ego quality in the language, does it? When you say to yourself, a non-desire, or uh, it's okay, or uh, accept, anything like that. It's not ego thought, is it? Not like, oh, I should really accept things. I'm so terrible. I, I'm so judgmental. That's wrong thinking. Or just going into analysis, like analyzing from Buddhist concepts or psychological concept, just going into thought. That's not what we mean. It can be useful, sure. But what we mean in meditation is more a language of coaching, of encouraging. And so it's a language of attitudes, a language of, of perspectives, ways that would help you look at life, ways that would offer like mirrors to your own way of functioning. And these are very personal. You, you, each of us picks it up in different ways from different teachers. So like last night's reading of, of Jean Klein's, where he, for those of you who are there, he's used that language of uh, available and watchful. And I read that about 1990. I thought, yeah, now that's really, that's really helpful. 
So I've used it ever since. Not constantly, but fairly often, available and watchful. And that, because I have some sense of what he was pointing to, reminds me of the insights I've already had. We all have insights. We all have wisdom. We're not, you know, we're not devoid of that. And we have the wisdom and capacity for awareness. So when we come across language like that and we employ it, then I, I think we're using right thought, which is coming from right understanding. Now, right understanding, as I've said before, right understanding can be intellectual. So there's the texts and the, the scriptures and the way it's all laid out for us. But right understanding is also knowing this moment as it is. So I, I kind of think of it as uh, intellectual right understanding and existential right understanding. My existence right now is like this. Now I could define it as cool, peaceful, uh, or whatever. That's a thought, but it is like this. And that aware mind understands. Even if I feel confusion, it still knows, or oh, confusion. And that understanding then, when it's conjoined with the teaching, why do you suffer? Well, I suffer because of you. No, 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 that's no, not true. I suffer because you don't treat me correctly. Uh, no, no, I suffer because I want something from you, say. So then I use that teaching. I bring it into my existential understanding. It's like this. And then I watch. And what, why, does not, why doesn't my psyche match the Buddha's recommendations? What is it about my conditioning or the conditioning of this mind better what is it about it that gets so off or wonky or whatever? And then you're, 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 you're awakening the mind with right understanding and then you're using the teaching to deepen that understanding. So the, 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 the language of, of, of that I find useful, say, um, is, is very much around, in meditation, very much around both awakening and desire because like anyone else when I started meditation uh, I had some nice experiences and then I had mostly not nice experiences the painful knees and, and falling asleep and being irritated at monks snoring or whatever whatever was going on and so much of my experiences weren't nice but the really nice ones then of course desire came up and I tried to get them and that's of course, a bad move because you always fail. You inevitably fail because you can't really retrieve that. And then my teacher said it's not about becoming, it's about being, about awakening, about knowing. And so the, the, the capacity for the knowing become the, the, the um, I would say that's an insight, isn't it? That I realize that uh, the whole path is based upon awakening rather than becoming. If I don't have that insight and I'm just moving towards another experience, I'll always move into an experience which becomes disappointing at some point. So that basic insight that the liberation of the heart or peace of the mind is not in the future, but it's in the here and now, begins to deepen right understanding. And then in that right understanding, as material comes up, which I'm trying to run away from, the other part of becoming is apparent, the idea of getting rid of. And that also doesn't work because that just takes you to a different experience. So these two movements of past and future 
becoming, uh, getting rid of, becoming, getting rid of. Those begin to see, you begin to see those, that's the energy of rebirth. Not rebirth as a, as a rabbit next lifetime, whatever, wherever we're going to end up, but rather as ego consciousness coming in, 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 into the present moment from this sense of becoming or getting rid of. And that's what we call tanha, bhava tanha, navi bhava tanha. And if you can notice that, you just that like in meditation, you notice that trying to get something or become something, and you notice that as an object, you will notice that also in other situations. And you'll see that it's the end of that sense of becoming where the mind touches peace. So in, in, in the instance of like the sense of getting somewhere, or getting rid of something, it's uncomfortable because what you're with is unfulfilled desire. The desire wants to get some experience, like confidence. So like let's say if you're, if you, if you're a doubter and, and you have a lot of self-doubt or you go into doubting a lot about this or that, your own capacities or, or whatever. Now that's a very uncomfortable state of mind. And, and rather than be with it, we start to read or we start to think and we try to become someone who is confident. So someone might come to you and, and give you a bit of confidence, but sure enough, when you walk away from that, you're going to have the same pattern. So at some point, you say, well, it's not about becoming confident. It's about knowing a lack of confidence as an object that has arisen and will pass away. It's about knowing the polarities or the dualities of our existence. And that's a big insight, isn't it? Otherwise, don't, don't we always just chase confidence because we think a lack of confidence is, 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 is not accept, acceptable. Sure, if you're, if you're uh, on a professional level, if, if you are a, a computer programmer, you better get your confidence up or you get fired. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's natural. But in, in the whole realm of our hearts and finding freedom, freedom isn't about intellectual confidence. It's more the confidence to know that confidence emotionally and a lack of confidence emotionally have the same value. They arise and they cease. And going through that and seeing that again and again and again, you begin to appreciate confidence, but not get blown away by doubt. And it might be love and hate. It might be um, uh, competence, incompetence, or whatever it is, these dualities. So the, 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 the world of things is the world of duality. So if you're not very good at programming, you'll get fired. Yeah, so you try to build up your con confidence and competence in doing that. But the world of the heart uh, is, 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 is a movement towards no duality. Like knowing is not a dual kind of experience. You know that you feel inspired and you know you feel depressed. And, 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 and it's neither of those, is it? The awareness of the knowing. You, you can, like, um, let's say, I, you know, be like giving these talks, you know? You know, kind of you're looking at a screen, <laughs> 25 faces, and it's weird. <laughs> I mean, I love your faces, right? But it's just weird. And then, then I, what do I do? I say, what am I gonna say? Oh, this is a feeling of not knowing. And then, oh, this is weird. And then I look, oh, this is Vivian, hi, Vivian. <laughs> and then I feel okay, right? And then I have to talk, and I don't feel okay. And, and the, you know, the internal movement is like that, but more and more, oh, this is what it feels like to know what you're saying. 
So, like my judging mind, after giving a talk, I always think it was terrible. And then someone will tell me, no, no, it wasn't terrible, it was lovely. I said, oh, can you say that again, please? <laughs> or, or whatever, but that's just the, the habit of mind, isn't it? But the knowing, the knowing where I feel confident. You know, sometimes, actually, I feel very confident, and then I get um, arrogant. Oh, I, look, I had 25 people listening to me or something. <laughs> you want my autograph? <laughs> so I can feel confident and overconfident and arrogant, and then lacking of confidence and, and, and feeling pathetic. But the refuge isn't in any of those. They're not a threat, really. The refuge is in knowing. And if you do that, then sure, you, you feel, you know, feel overconfident sometimes and then watch your speech. <laughs> Be careful if you're a dumb home. That's just overconfidence. And the other comes of, oh, I don't know, I don't know. But more and more, the, the refuge is in knowing. And then life becomes much more spontaneous. Because the refuge is in knowing, then life becomes a more like spontaneous interchange with the elements that come to you, the conditions that come to you. And this is where the Brahma Viharas begin to function because the Brahma Viharas of Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka of the heart are natural um, emanations or natural attitudes uh, from the mind which isn't preoccupied with past and future. All of us have, have have done retreats, right? You come out of a, a sitting and you really notice the pine tree, don't you? Or you really smell the pine cones. And you really notice the squirrel. And why? Because your mind is free. It's not preoccupied with past and future. And there's tremendous beauty in that. And then, of course, you attach to it and then you try to get the beauty back and then you ruin it <laughs> or whatever. But why is, why is it so beautiful? Why? Because the mind is free. We all have that. We all have that possibly. We go canoeing or, or we have different environments that, that might take place. So the more we, I, I would say, the more we abide as the knowing uh, and know things as they arise and cease, the opportunity for real loving uh, relationship with this moment is, it becomes available. What else should you do? Right? What else would happen? And so the heart begins to appreciate the color of a squirrel or uh, the beauty of a tree or empathy for someone who is suffering from COVID or whatever. The response is, is, is from a heart which is free. And that's what the Brahma Viharas are about. The Brahma Viharas are, we do them as exercises. May I be well, may you be well. Those are really good exercises to do. But the real, I think the liberation of the heart uh, allows them, allows them to, um, present themselves in situations which are appropriate. So mudita is the um, loving expression of joy and beauty. So uh, this environment brings a lot of mudita for all of us. You know, the animals and the, and the colors and the smells and the flowers brings forth a lot of sense of joy in the heart. But if I'm preoccupied with building a dharma hall, or, or, or worrying about furniture or whatever, if I'm preoccupied with that, I can never notice it. Someone tells me, oh, it's a pine tree. Oh, that's nice. Okay. And I just think all the time. So there's mudita. And, and, and as I always say, I think Mary Oliver's poetry to me is, she's a, she's a, 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 a mudita aficionado. <laughs> It's a wonderful kind of appreciation of nature. But then we, all, we don't always feel joy when, 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 when someone's in, in a bad state, when they're 
when they're down and out, when they have sickness and you hear about it, our heart responds appropriately to that. Compassion. How are you doing? How can I help you? Generosity and service. And these are natural emanations of the heart. They're not, they're not constructed. They're, they're the, I would say they're the, the, the manifestations of a mind which is freed from all this preoccupation. Sometimes, sometimes we notice that, and when we notice that, then it, it, it's good to kind of just register that and see what kind of imagery might rekindle that in your heart. And that's the practices of, of, of the heart. So as you know, I think I have, a, I have a shrine to my mom, and I just, I'm constantly lighting candles. Monastery goes through a lot of candles. <laughs> and, and there's a picture of her, and I put flowers on it. And what am I doing? Am I kind of pining for my mom? Oh, mom. Make me a sandwich. No. I, I, what I'm doing is that by looking at the picture and, and reflecting on her goodness and her uh, our relationship, I remember the Brahma Viharas. I recollect the Brahma Viharas. They come into my mind. It's always there. They are available. And so that comes into the heart and that reinforces that, reinforces that attitude. Now, that's not a practice of becoming a loving person. I'm not kind of, you know, doing a little meditation practice so that I become a loving person. It's the doing of love, isn't it? It's the doing of compassion. Why? Because of memory, because of availability, because of watchfulness. Huh? And then the more that's encouraged in the heart, then the more that's what the heart becomes, or that's more what you are, naturally. So it's not like I'm going to get rid of anger, and then I'm going to do this loving practice that's never quite worked for me it's more like oh anger feels this way don't go there don't run with it it feels this way and the refuge of awareness becomes strong and then as the angers and rages and fears begin to fall away the heart begins to be much more pliable available uh, loving i would say loving not in a kind of sentimental sense right so sometimes you just have to bear witness to difficult things. But if your attitude is one of not, not judging the difficulty as being wrong, but as a way of building this capacity for awareness, then it would be very profitable. It's very useful. You might not realize it in the moment, but you begin to appreciate that more and more. And then the heart becomes more and more available. So availability is both uh, to awareness itself, and that available, availability becomes very profound because you realize where it takes you. It takes you to great places of love and silence. How's that? Some ideas to think about? Uh, any questions? 